0: sound was used for centuries as a method of torture place someone's head inside of a bell and ring it and eventually they'll go insane the answer is in the beat saturdays 3 to 6 a.m and eventually- on wcb fm ann arbor they're insane.
1: They're going insane. They're Go insane.
0: Go insane.
1: The Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Today in the studio, Clayton Eshelman is here. We are taping this program October 18th, 2012. Clayton, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for coming to the radio station today. Um, you'll, be, you'll be reading in the Zell Visiting Writers series, and, and that reading will have happened at UMA already, and so hopefully some of the listeners have, have caught you there. Um, and for those listening from far away as well, Clayton will be reading uh, some some poems today from Solar Throat Slashed, um, the unexpurgated 1948 edition. Um, and without further ado, I'll now read the short bio in the back. Clayton Eshelman is a poet, translator, essayist, and editor. He is the author of 17 collections of poetry and the primary American translation of César Vallejo, Aimé César, and Antonin Artaud. Eshelman is the first poet to realize a huge researched and imaginative project in prose and poetry on Age Cave Art, Juniper Fuse, Upper Paleolithic Imagination, and the Construction of the Underworld. He was also the founder and editor of Caterpillar Magazine, 1967 to 1973, and Sulphur Magazine, 1981 to 2000. In 2011, Black Widow Press will publish his co-translation, oh, did publish his co-translation with Lucas Klein of Bidow's Endure. And Clayton, there's already things to add to this bio, isn't there? Because we've got um, the Wesleyan addition to add to that yes in 2011 and then we've got this upcoming 2013.
0: Yes the uh, we, we've co-translated the original uh, notebook of return to the native land which is Cesar's most famous single poem and it turns out there's four versions of that poem and uh, the public mainly knows the 1956 version which is the most uh, corrected and uh, extended of all the versions, and that's the book that and uh, I have a translation of that with uh, Annette Smith that is in print from Wesleyan at this point. Um, so what Jim Arnold and I have done, we've gone back to the very first one, which was uh, written in uh, published in a magazine in 1939 and written in the early 30s when Césaire was just becoming a poet. And uh, it's never been published as a book before. Um, it only appeared in French in this magazine in, in 1939. And it's more or less been passed over by Césaire scholars. We think it's a very important work, and it may be the, the most um, meaningful of all of the uh, versions of the notebook. So that will be coming out this spring. At the same time, there's also going to be an international Césaire conference on the Wesleyan campus on April the 5th and the 6th.
1: So you'll be there for Uh, that, yeah,
0: for that reading actually from the notebook.
1: The -hmm. the notebook, Um, and how? So this this notebook, um, Clayton. When you said that it's been translated in other versions, but never as a a book length. When is it that you? Is it because it's the original? Uh, Because you mentioned that that this was the first one.
0: Well, this is the first version of his famous notebook of return to the native land. And the, the version that is most well-known and has been translated several times in English and into other foreign languages is the 1956 version, which is much longer than the original version. And it has a great deal of additions and political material that is not part of the first version, which is more of a lyric surreal poem.
1: And is and is more indicative of him as an his early life as a, as a poet. Then.
0: Yes, of his life before he became really deeply involved in political activity and thinking, and when he was a poet without really any political ambitions.
1: Because when what I was thinking about Clayton, as you were speaking, is how do you decide? As a translator, if something exists in in translations, when do you, as a, a poet and translator, then decide to 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 do your version of it?
0: Well, the, there's no problem with the 1939 version because it's never been translated into English before. It's been translated into Spanish, and a version of it appeared in Havana in 1943, but it's never been translated, and there's been no attention to it for 30, 40 years. Uh In terms of translating the nineteen fifty six version, which is the primary version which students read and study and by which it 's the primary book that Caesarare is known as a poet, um, I read a version of it well, actually when I was a student at Indiana University in the late nineteen fifties and Césaire made a big impression on my mind, and i you know, I, I didn't know any French at the time, and I wasn't planning on translating. And then, uh, in I think 1960, and a man named Emile Snyder translated a poem of Césaire's called Lynch One, and the poet Jack Hirschman published it in a tiny little magazine called Hip Pocket Poets. <laughs> what a poems. great
1: what a great name. And it
0: was about two <laughs> inches by two inches, and you could really fit in your hip pocket. And this is a prose poem, it's a one-page prose poem, and that really made a deep impression on me. I couldn't get it out of my mind for months. And at that point, I decided that it would be interesting to read more of Cesare and to even consider about translating him. So one thing led to another, and uh, when I was teaching at uh, Caltech in Pasadena, uh, in the, in, the uh, in 1970s, why Annette Smith, who was in the humanities division there, she and I teamed up as a translation uh, unit, and we spent a lot of time translating Césaire. We we, we did the notebook, and we did also a uh, collected poems, which uh, UCAL Press brought out in 1983. And since then, we've also done the poems that Césaire wrote in the 1980s, um and in fact we've we've done most of the poetry there's not that much left to do and i'm no longer working with annette smith who is retired and i don't think that she's active any longer she's quite elderly Uh, but arnold and i are now considering doing the complete poetry and wesleyan will publish it if we decide to do it
1: oh that would be brilliant
0: yeah Yeah. it looks to me like it's about a year's work
1: And and I love how it seems that the people that you decide to translate to work with, it's because something gets to you into your own uh, your being or your own work. It sounds like like that's what it. From reading um, in the complete poetry of Cesar Vallejo, um, in the back there's this this wonderful um, essay that you include in the book about your relationship to actually. Um, being a translator, right,
0: right. Uh, um, well, I came into poetry through Vallejo. I mean, my apprenticeship to poetry, uh, which I um, I determined while living in Kyoto, Japan, in 1962, 63, 64, was to translate all of the human poems, the poemas humanos manos of Cesar Vallejo, and I didn't know what I was getting myself into, and my Spanish really wasn't up to doing that, but I took it on. And I got lost in it, and the struggles with that book and also struggles with other aspects of Vallejo, including the Vallejo Widow and getting permission to publish the translations, et cetera, et cetera, uh, was really a very profound initiation into the literary world. And so Vallejo is at the very beginning of my career. Césaire is much later. I mean, I became involved in translating Césaire uh, in the late 70s.
1: And and to to go back to Vallejo for a moment in this essay you you write about being in. Japan, but this was not the first time you'd also lived internationally. When you were going to the University of Indiana, you it seemed like between terms you went to Mexico. You lived in well, Mexico. Two summers City. I
0: hitchhiked to Mexico. Yeah, that was when anybody, everyone was on the road because <laughs> of the Beats, right? Yeah, the Beats. Yeah. Sure, the Beats. Beats is one of the most interesting things the Beats did, is they they got people traveling and and le- actually leaving America and seeing something besides America. And so the idea of going out on the road on on, on a June morning at six thirty with my friend Don Eggert and my father dropped us off. We had our two suitcases and bags and, and Don had his guitar with him <laughs> and we just stuck on our thumb and headed for Mexico, outside of Indianapolis, Indiana. <laughs> I mean, nobody could could do that today, you know. It doesn't.
1: It seems no. so different.
0: Well, nobody would pick you up, or if they did, why? You know, God knows who's going to be picking you up, <laughs> right. you know. Uh, so.
1: And what was it like? Because it seemed actually to me, reading that um, part of your biography, Clayton, that it was really brave of you to go, because your your father was an efficiency expert yeah, in, in a, a slaughterhouse. In a slaughterhouse. Yeah. And so. Yeah. What did he think of you deciding to 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 basically hitchhike with your friend and his guitar to Mexico City? Well, they didn't
0: understand it, of course, but at least they didn't say no. I must uh, say both my mother and father were fairly easy with me in terms of my seeking a literary career. And they didn't understand it, but uh, if they asked me what I wanted for a Christmas present when I was... Uh, A student still at Indiana University, I said, uh, the collected poems of Wallace Stevens. My mother would go out and find the collected poems of Wallace Stevens, and there it would be under the Christmas tree. So they were okay about that. They didn't have a very uh, imaginative life themselves. I was an only child, and uh, my mother was 37, which was very old in those days to have a child. And uh, I was brought up with no books in the house, and... uh, no, it's it's really, <laughs> it's really quite remarkable that I ended up doing what I'm doing. I I brought over Bud Powell to to have a little music for this this talk, and the reason that I one of the reasons I brought Paul is that uh, when I was in high school, um, I used to read a magazine called Downbeat, which which was the sort of the uh, Oh, was the, if you wanted to find out what people in jazz were doing while you read Downbeat, which came out monthly. And they advertised an, an, uh, a 45 uh, RPM record by Paul, which had Bud Powell playing T for Two on one side and Lady Tristano playing I Surrender on the next side. I think I paid 50 cents for it, and I got it through the mail. And I started listening to T for Two, which I knew as a song, and what Paul did... But T for Two was really so astonishing that I began to realize that I didn't have to live the life that I was living, that I didn't have to, as it were, play the music that my parents played, symbolically speaking, but I could improvise and I could sort of create my own trajectory, my own kind of way of being in the world. And Paul got that—I mean, it took me several years to really get that through my head. Okay. But he got it into me when I was 16, 17 years old, and so I thought it would be interesting to bring Paul over under the circumstances.
1: No, that's—I that's. that's a, I mean, you had an epiphany. What was you're... my
0: first translation? It was me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you were becoming. And, and how did you know to be interested— In jazz, because you mentioned it was different than your parents' music. Well, I'd
0: been playing a little piano. My mother gave me neighborhood piano teacher lessons. Mm -hmm. So I'd been playing classical uh, music. And in high school, why I lived uh, down from the high school, about three blocks, was a record store. And I got in the habit of going over to the record store and just listening to music after high school was out. And I heard a lot of jazz, and it started to appeal to me. And, and also, you know, the the world of jazz was also a lifestyle. It was an alternative lifestyle. You know, black people were involved, et cetera, et cetera. And so I started getting fascinated with what it what it was about, and that led me into spending 50 cents for the Bud Paul record.
1: Well uh, worth it. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: right. Yeah. And it's amazing that you say that this Tea for Two song was a trans- like that? Was a translation. Well, he was that translating T for
0: two, and he led me to believe that I could translate something of my own. And uh, as I say, it took me a, f- a few years to get to the idea that I could uh, attempt to become an artist. I could attempt to become a poet, and that would be a translation of my background in in that I could take my given life and I could turn it into a creative life, which was you know the basic translation that anyone makes coming into the arts
1: and did that start happening then when you were in at university because because you you some you became the editor um a folio there so so you must have what was your
0: well i started out in music school and then i went from business music school into business school for a year i flunked out of business school and for the best and then i came back in uh, I tried to get back into business school, but before I could really do anything else there, I was thrown out of school for having too many parking tickets. <laughs> and so I moved out of the fraternity. I was in the Phi Delta Theta fraternity at this point, And I moved out of the fraternity into an apartment in, in downtown Bloomington. And I had a couple of roommates that were vets from Korea, and they were older than I was, and they were quite serious. They were history students, and they thought that my world of the fraternity and business school was really, you know, nothing. And so I started looking around for other things to do, and I ended up going into uh, this, into philosophy, and I ended up getting a B.A. in philosophy. But while I was getting a B.A. in philosophy, I took a, a, a couple of poetry courses, and I met a guy named Jack Hirschman, the man that did the, the little book with the Césaire poem that I mentioned earlier. And Hirschman was from New York, and he and his wife Ruth were living together with their two children. He was in graduate school. And he was a huge reader, and he'd been involved in poetry since he was a kid. And so he introduced me to really to poetry
1: let's take a short break and we'll be right back with um more with Clayton Eshelman here today on Living Writers I'm T Hetzel we'll be right back Welcome back. You've got living writers. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you tuned in today on the program. Clayton Eshelman is here. Um, Clayton, we've had you in so many places in the uh, the first part of our conversation, and there's so many more places to go. But you 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 said that you've valued living out outside of the U.S. and you went to Mexico City on these explorations and that do you think that's what directly then opened up the, the pathway for you then going to Japan for three years after graduation?
0: Well through Hirschman and through other people that I met at Indiana University I had become aware of poetry in translation. I was reading Rilke and Lorca people like that in translation and when I went to Mexico why I started learning Spanish because if you're in Mexico why it's, it's natural to try to pick up some of the foreign language. Yes. So I first began to translate some of Neruda's uh, Residencia en la Tierra, Residence on Earth, and which was relatively simple. And I did my, my first translations of that, and they were published as a little book in 1962 after I had moved to Kyoto, Japan. And I would never reprint the book because the translations aren't very good.
1: Clayton, were there already existing Neruda translations at that time? Oh, there you were a had, lot of
0: Neruda translations.
1: It's true, right? And so then at that but time— But most
0: of them weren't any good.
1: See, and that's what I love is that then you're able to kind of sense that. Do you think you sense that because of, um, like, how you well, as a poet Neru- Well, would-
0: Reading Ben Bellet's translations of Pablo Neruda, all you needed was a dictionary oh. to realize that they weren't accurate. And so uh, then, that was, of course, a spur to many of us of my generation. I mean, Ben Bellet, I think, turned a number of people of my generation into translators uh, after our horror at what he was doing to Neruda's poetry. The horror. <laughs> yeah. No, no, really. I mean, he he wrote his own poetry sort of into... into. It reminds me of a little of Kafka's in the Penal Colony, in which they write in the victim's back his sentence, if you remember that great short story of, of Kafka. So it's as if that... Uh, uh, ben Bellett was writing his sentence in the back of po- poor Pablo Neruda, you know, who was sort of, you know, pinioned down on a, on a vice. Yeah, but and, using
1: his name to get people to well, read. Well, I mean, it, as so an
0: example, there's a little Neruda poem, one of the odas, uh, in which there's a bug climbing a, a, a plant. And Neruda is not a very impressive poem, but it's the first one that comes to my mind that when I think of Bellet. And Neruda says that the the, uh, the bug has piernas metales, which in uh, Spanish simply means metal legs. Bellet translates the phrase piernas metales as wearing ironclad trousers.
1: <laughs> oh I mean, boy. you really wonder, you know, That's what was really he smoking? That's really musical.
0: And, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But that's a typical uh, Bellet uh, thing, and which has nothing to do with with the Neruda phrase, right? Mm-hmm. And he's added wearing an ironclad. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, uh, as I say, a number of us, I think, were turned into translators by reading these translations of Ben Bellet. So anyway, when I I moved to to I took a job teaching, initially, for the University of Maryland GIs Literature in the Far Eastern Division. And uh, when I packed my bags to go, I had just gotten married to my first wife. Why I threw in a copy of, uh, of Vallejo's poems yeah, that I had bought China. in Mexico City, just as, well, maybe I'll read these, and boom, and they went. And so at one day, while living in Kyoto, a couple of years later, I started reading Vallejo, and I realized I was in a completely different Body of water than I was with uh, with Neruda. Neruda's early poems, I think, some of them are wonderful, and I think he's a poet who doesn't, for the most part, improve as he as he gets older. But the poems were uh, quite readable and followable in a way that the poems of Manos of of. of of Vallejo were engaging, but they were complex in a way that you really had to think to make any sense out of them.
1: So they shook you up, and you were in your early yeah. 20s at this point then.
0: Well, let's see. It was 62. Uh, I really discovered Vallejo in about nineteen sixty-two. I was born at 35, 45, 55, 60. I was 20, 27. Okay. Yeah.
1: Which, which, And that is a strange year. In a life.
0: Oh, it is? Really? I, I think do. so. Well, the, what is so strange about well, 27?
1: It's also, well, it's like the rock star year where everyone dies, and so things oh, really well, change for people well, or I know artists. Oh, no. Well, we won't go. It's <laughs> kind of grim. Sorry to
0: bring it up. Is, it, but, is that when Janis Joplin died at 27? Yeah. Really? 27? Yeah, I what think. A shame uh, that is. And
1: Hendrix, Cobain, Hendrix? and uh-huh. um, Morrison, I think, too. Like, strangely. Um, but. Um, yeah. I felt like it was a strange year for you with Vallejo and you, you write about it in your memoir of being a translator that, um, that more and more I felt that I was struggling with a man as well as a text and that this struggle was a matter of my becoming or failing to become a poet. Mm-hmm. That's like right to the core then.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: yeah. What was the idea then of, because at this point w- could you, could you have not become a poet? Like, what can you talk a little bit about this struggle? Well, this I didn't moment? know what
0: the, I didn't. I didn't know what the alternative was. I yeah. was I was living in Japan and in an old Japanese house with my first wife, learning some Japanese. Kyoto was a marvelous place to to go through this, which was very complicated. I mean, it was really like I was. It's easy to write poetry when you're in college, especially today. You can get degrees in writing poetry. And, um, Why I do you so,
1: think it's easy? Just because you're... Oh, because
0: so- you take creative writing classes, you can sit and talk with the students about what you're doing, you have a nice professor who, who, who talks with you kindly about what you're doing and you get graded and you, you get a degree and... Uh, then
1: you're in Kyoto teaching English. But uh, <laughs> if you're
0: in Kyoto and, and you're teaching English as a foreign language and you're living in a little Japanese house and you can hardly, you know, read the street signs mm-hmm. and you just have a bunch of books with you and a lot of time on your hands um, then suddenly you're really on your own and you have to figure out what to read and how to read and then nobody's telling you what to do and i think that this that's really one of the differences now In when i came into poetry you really had to initiate yourself off of yourself and nobody else was going to initiate you and i think that's one of the differences between becoming a poet and becoming a writer of creative writing. I think that creative writing, to a great extent, is replacing poetry in America, in the country that we live in today, because it's, it's not hard to do, and you can get a job, et cetera, et cetera, etc., etc. And, you know, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of books every year that are published by, by young people that, whose only experience with poetry is through creative writing workshops, you know, and a few literary courses. Anyway...
1: And so, so, but the but other paths through this experience is to pick people that somehow grab you out of like the prose poem and the language. Yeah, like the discovery of
0: Cesare, the discovery of Vallejo, or or for that matter, uh, Neruda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no. A friend of mine, Bill Payton, gave me a wonderful book that's never been reprinted. It's called Anthology of Latin American Poetry, published by New Directions in 1945.
1: That was the moment that things changed for you. And,
0: and I discovered both Neruda and, and Vallejo in that collection. Yeah. Yeah. And
1: so then it's, in a way, you're having this conversation with people that have gone before because you're working within their mind of the language in some way.
0: Uh, say that again?
1: Well, you're in conversation with these, these people, poets from the past, that, that, and you're, you're with their mind on the page.
0: Well, I didn't way. really think of it as a, having a conversation with Vallejo. It was more or less I like breaking my head on Vallejo.
1: <laughs> right, right. Uh, the I, struggle. I was trying
0: to figure out what Vallejo was about as I was trying to translate him and often not knowing how to translate him. No, no, it was a crazy thing to do. I mean, here I was in Kyoto trying to translate Cesar Vallejo. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, Gary Snyder, who was responsible for my being right. in Kyoto, he, he, he visited us on his way to, to join Allen Ginsberg in India he, the year before when we were living in Tokyo. And he said, you don't have to do this. You can come to Kyoto and teach English as a foreign language. And Kyoto is a terrific city to live in, and uh, you don't have to deal with the army. So we moved. And Gary was right, but once I got to Kyoto then and I had all of this time on my hands in Vallejo, then I was I was at the edge of something else. And uh, and, and Gary used to say, you're spending too much time on Vallejo, you should be working on your own stuff. And I, I would say things like, well, to some extent I'm working on myself by working on Vallejo. I can work on Vallejo in a way that I don't know how to work on myself. Um, I would sit and stare at the typewriter cross-legged on the tatami mat for, you know, for three or four hours trying to figure out what, what next word to type in. So, that you know, but uh, everyone who's really uh, started poetry from scratch knows what I'm talking about.
1: And it's probably the le- that probably wasn't the last time you heard that, what Gary Snyder saying, you're working on these translations more than your own work.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, Gary said it at a point that was very memorable, because he had a point, but Mm -hmm. then again, he didn't have a point. Mm -hmm. He was right and he was wrong at the same time. I was doing the right thing by by translating the of Omanus, I'm sure. I'm sure, because I learned something about poetry that I wouldn't have otherwise learned. I mean, I would not have learned by reading T.S. Eliot or Wallace Stevens. You see, because in translating, you're in a process of transformation, and I was looking at the English that I was producing, and I was beginning to realize that I was being influenced by sort of not so much by Vallejo, but what I was turning Vallejo into, because here is the English on the page that I've created for this particular poem, and so that is the thing that's going to give me a sense of what poetry is, of what I've turned Vallejo into. So it's a it's a big difference between being influenced, let's say, by Vallejo via translation, than say by being translated by reading Ezra Pound or or another poet in English.
1: Yeah, because you are you're still reading, and, but you're not
0: um, you're not making anything. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and is it the same also being um, an editor in a way, as you because you're making a book out of other. Like, uh, no, well, I wasn't rather. doing
0: a selected poems. I wasn't choosing which poems to. I was insisting on doing all of Pablo Humanos. In fact, Vallejo, up to that point, had only been translated by people picking out the cherries, as oh, it were, like, okay. like Robert Bly and, and, and James Wright did a, did a little uh, selected, you know, twenty poems, I think, of of, of Vallejo and Art and uh, Neruda uh no but i was i thought it was very important to do the complete poems of which at that point was 89 poems so it was really it was taking on a lot
1: you you don't you don't uh get dissuaded from things either you're you're like tenacity is your middle name <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah but you you have to have that as an artist or or, or there's just too much discouragement out there you know unless you really hold on and insist on following things through I mean I had terrible experiences while I was translating Vallejo especially when I was in Lima, Peru and everything was was just sort of calculated to stop me on the project but the more difficult it became the more I insisted on completing it because I really felt in maybe a way that's a little crazy but I really felt that my own becoming a poet was very much involved in seeing this thing through And, of course, after I I published the first translations of the human poems in 1968 with Grove Press, I realized that the translation wasn't as good as it should be. So I continued to do further versions of it, and the final version, 42 years later, is the complete poetry of César Vallejo.
1: Let's take a short break, and then when we come back, would you mind reading sure one Um, you're listening to living writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor today Clayton Eshelman is here Um, we've got Gus as engineer I'm T Hetzel we'll be right back Welcome back. You're listening to WCBN FM, Anna Arbor. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Clayton Eshelman is here. Um, and we've got books on the table, Solar Throat Slashed, um, and The Complete Cesar Vallejo, um, which Clayton is now paging through um, to find not one of the cherries, right? But maybe they're all cherries now <laughs> after living with them these years. Um but, but finding a poem... Would well, this is
0: it? one of the first poems from the uh, human poems, or poemas humanas, that really, uh, they really knocked me for a loop. Uh, it's untitled. Uh, the, the Spanish is, Me viene ideas una gana uberima politica. There are days, there comes to me, An exuberant political hunger to desire, to kiss tenderness on both cheeks. And there comes to me from afar a demonstrative desire, another desire to love willingly or by force. Whoever hates me, whoever tears up his paper, the little boy, the woman who weeps for the man who was weeping, the king of wine, the slave of water. Whoever hid in his wrath, whoever sweats, whoever passes by, whoever shakes his person in my soul. And I desire, therefore, to adjust the braid of whoever talks to me, the soldier's hair, the light of the great, the greatness of the child. I desire to iron directly a handkerchief for whoever is unable to cry. And when I am sad or happiness aches me, to mend the children and the geniuses. I desire to help the good one become a little bad, and I have an urge to be seated to the right of the left-handed and to respond to the mute, trying to be useful to him as I can. And likewise, I desire very much to wash the cripple's foot and to help my one-eyed neighbor sleep. Ah... To desire this one mine, this one the world's interhuman and parochial mature. It comes perfectly timed from the foundation, from the public groin, and coming from afar makes me hunger to kiss the singer's muffler, and whoever suffers to kiss him on his frying pan, the deaf man fearlessly on his cranial murmur whoever gives me what I forgot in my breast, on his Dante, on his chaplain, on his shoulders. I desire finally, when I'm at the celebrated edge of violence, or my heart full of chest, I would desire to help whoever smiles laugh, to put a little bird right on the evildoer's nape, to take care of the sick, annoying them, to buy from the vendor, to help the killer kill a terrible thing and i would desire to be good to myself in everything
1: which is also is amazing i when i read that one for some reason I was so caught off guard by the final sent because there's this accumulation of the strange conflicts and desire within it and super surprises that you don't even see coming, like the frying pan.
0: Oh, right. No, the- no, you know, you don't <laughs> see it from line to line, even though that the poem has a fairly uh steady stem to it. I mean it doesn't flip around and, and make, you know, surrealist departures here and there uh and and, and it, you're really listening to a kind of a narrative meditative self-involved investigation yeah
1: and and that when you read that poem long, like the for maybe for the first or second time clayton did that did that release you into a new way of thinking about your own mind and desire and
0: well as i write there's there's a passage on on finding that poem that i can read from the translation memoir, I say uh, the first poem I tried to read was the piece I just read. It was as if a hand of wet sand had come out of the original and quicked me in. I was quicksanded in over my head, or was it a spar Vallejo threw me? In this poem, Vallejo was claiming that he desired to love and that his desire for desire led him to imagine all sorts of interhuman acts, like kissing a singer's muffler or kissing a deaf man on his cranial murmur. He wanted to help everyone achieve his goal, no matter what it was, even to help the killer kill. And he wanted to be good to himself in everything. These were thoughts that, had I had them myself, I would have either have dismissed or so immediately repressed that they would have evaporated. But now I realized that there was a whole wailing cathedral of desires, half-desires, mad-desires, anti-desires, all of which in the Vallejo poem seemed caught on the edge of no-desire. And if so, what brought about these bizarre desires? The need to flee his body? His inability to act on desire? A terrible need to intercede in everyone's acts? I didn't know, but trying to read him made me feel that I was in the presence of a mile-thick spirit. So I kept at it.
1: Is Is—is this how somehow connected, thank you, Clayton, Too. To grotesque realism, then, this this idea of immersion in the body, but, um, but not of the, the physical body, but of the all?
0: Well, grotesque realism, as I understand it, is a theory of literature based on Rabelais by a man named Mikhail Bakhtin, a, a, a Russian literary theorist of the early part of the 20th century. Uh, who wrote a book that my old friend Dennis Kelly gave me called The World of Rabelais, and in the first 60 to 70 pages, Bakhtin lays out his theory of grotesque realism based on Rabelais. And I realized when I was reading that that there were certain points and moves that I had been experimenting with in my own poetry, and so Bakhtin became a kind of support. In other words, he gave me courage to try to do various things that had sort of frightened me or puzzled me, in my poetry. This was in 1972 when I was c- trying to complete a book called Coils, which was very very difficult for me to complete, and which, in a sense, sort of ends my apprenticeship to poetry on really? my own. Yeah, yeah, Coils did. Black. I uh, was published by Black Sparrow in 1973. Um, so, grotesque realism doesn't really figure directly into Vallejo, there, I imagine that somebody could write a paper in which they would take particular lines of Vallejo and be able to make a credible case that they express a certain kind of realistic and grotesque view of life.
1: So there's an idea for some a student out there listening.
0: Yes, for, not for me at this point, <laughs> but maybe for someone else. But
1: when you, you know. say it ends the apprenticeship, um, mm-hmm. what can you say more about that, Clayton?
0: Well, when I was in Kyoto... My friend, Will Peterson, came by one day and said he'd just been at a bonsai gardener's place and he loved what the guy was doing. And for some reason, I don't know why I asked him this, I said, how old is this guy? And uh, and Will said, well, he said, he says, he's just really come into his own. He says, he's in his mid-sixties. And I gulped because here I was trying to write you know, significant poetry in my late 20s. And it had never occurred to me that as an artist I should be willing to do an apprenticeship to the art. So that was really what got me thinking about an apprenticeship and, and 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 enabling me to lock into the human poems. So I think that we all have a kind of period in which we don't know what we're doing. We have to willi- really be willing to get lost, because you can't be found, of course, unless you're lost. And there's a period of many, anywhere from a few years. In a few cases, someone like Rambeau has an extremely quick apprenticeship. It doesn't stand him in very strong stead because he, you know, has a very brief life. Or Dylan Thomas, etc. There's a number of poets like these. Allen Ginsberg, to some extent, is in this case, but Allen lived into his mm. in the late sixties. Um, in which you have a very short apprenticeship and suddenly you burst into your own voice and being and you do something quite unique, you know, after over only having written poetry for four or five years. That's not true for most of us. I think 20 years is, is it would be a good period of, of finding your own ground, finding, as they say, your own voice, finding your own way of being in a poem and doing something that is to some extent original. It's very difficult to be original anymore. But to some extent original, and that is your own. And I think this text takes a long time.
1: And sometimes it seems like there's other voices or things that are encouraging people maybe in a direction that isn't maybe their own voice, or too early. Well,
0: or so. if the, most, most people imitate other people i mean this the stuff that's coming out of the creative writing world is all imitative poems of 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 you know examples that they are that, that they they are given by their their professor to read and so on poems that they have not chosen or uh ideas about poetry that crop up in the creative writing workshop context
1: maybe and maybe you try these on but some people get caught in them
0: so you know, no uh, I, I think there's always I don't think even though there's many more people writing poetry today, I don't think there's any more original poetry. I think each generation produces maybe a dozen in America, a dozen poets that seem to contribute to the art and drive it forward and open up new venues that have not been opened before. I mean, the, the, there was a tremendous you know, amount of activity like this at the beginning of the 20th century with the Pound and, and William's generation. I mean, that was huge. The difference between what those people did in the beginning of the 20th century, Gertrude Stein, Wallace Stevens, Hart Crane, mm. etc., in contrast to what had happened in the 19th century right. is just... Mind-boggling.
1: So what? I like. It makes me think of like the shifts that are happening now, and will it be? Well, it's a know, different no. shift
0: that's happening now. It's not a good shift. It's oh. not a good shift. No. How? How so? No, because oh. of the creative writing workshops and the programs. But it's you cre- th- creative writing is in the process of replacing poetry. Is
1: it? Could be. Could people be doing something like more with the digital scape? With poetry, so it won't even be something I don't we know recognize. much about the
0: digital world. I'm, I'm an old, uh, I'm an old person, and, and I, I look. I didn't have a computer until 2002. So uh, no, I don't know much about uh, digitality.
1: Do you have you ever composed a poem on the computer or do? Oh you yeah, do I work on the, the
0: computer all the time. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, at home, I, I write in notebooks when I travel. But at home, no. I, I and the computer is is great in terms of like being able to keep things and change things and stuff like that. No, I'm 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 very happy with with writing on the computer, and translating too. I mean, Jim Arnold and I go back and forth online. Oh right. And I mean, the amount of grounds that we can cover in like several hours of exchanging maybe a dozen letters on this or that. I mean, you can you say, you can save a month's work, you know, really. So I'm all for computers. No problem.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what, Clayton, let's take a short break, and when we come back... Um, I'll read a
0: couple of pieces from the Césaire.
1: I'd love that. And can we talk oh. about caves?
0: Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we better choose one or the other. Oh,
1: no. Okay, we'll take a very short break. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Clayton Eshelman is here. We'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Clayton Eshelman is here, and we've been doing our best to fit it all in, but there's so much to say, so we've just decided Clayton's going to have to come back <laughs> at some point, if you're willing. You don't live far away, Clayton. So sure. Well,
0: uh, I can come back and talk about the new book that's coming out. This December,
1: and yes, and a reading at in uh, January at Nicholas.
0: Yes, yes. I haven't worked out the date yet, but there'll be a program at Nicholas in in uh, in January for a book called "The Price of Experience," which is a uh, four hundred ninety-page compendium of various genres, including translations, poems, uh, lectures on cave art that I gave to our groups that we used to take to the. Upper Paleolithic Painted Caves in Southwestern France. Um, and then there's a Brittany Journal there that has poetry and prose. And a lot of notes and articles and essays on various people from Carly Schneemann to Domier. And, uh, and there's also a set of aphorisms and tiny poems and <laughs> gists and piths called erratics, which I've been working on for years, and two long poems, a poem called An Anatomy of the Night, which was written in 2010, and the, the work begins more or less with a poem called The Moisten Splendor, which was written on LSD in New York City on uh, the night before Christmas in 1967. So it's really a it's a it's an unusual I think very unique kind of collection of, of various genres and writings.
1: That's some book, Clayton. Yeah, yes, yeah. And it seems like the right way for your <laughs> work to to come to someone to read. Yeah. So we so it ranges from even nineteen sixty seven, huh?
0: Yes, the earliest piece in it is a piece on Carolee Schneeman's film fuses which i published in my first magazine caterpillar caterpillar two and it's a little kind of uh sort of ode in prose to this remarkable film that she brought over to my loft and showed me one evening that she'd made it's a homemade movie you know 16 millimeter you've never seen it i take it you don't know Schneeman's work not yet no you've heard have you heard of her Oh, she's, in, she's a very important artist who hasn't really gotten her due. She's in my generation, about the same age, lives in New York State. Uh, i have then, to check it out. And then the work ranges. There's, an, uh, there's a piece in there on called the, the Answer Man about my experience selling vacuum cleaners door-to-door as a teenager in Indianapolis. So there's all sorts of stuff that doesn't seem to belong.
1: <laughs> but yet it does. It does. Yeah. it does, and so you've and you mentioning Caterpillar yeah. Clayton again. It's and this is something that you did for 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 years, some twenty issues or so,
0: and then and, I did twenty and, issues of Caterpillar in six years, and, and then I stopped editing magazines for a while. And in 1981, I started another magazine, which ran for 46 issues. And
1: when do you... Yes. And 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 it
0: ended in 2000.
1: And when do you decide, I'm going to start another magazine?
0: Well, because there was nothing around in 1981 that struck me as what we really needed as a literary magazine. And so, and as a matter of fact, there's never been anything like Sulphur since it. Sulphur is going to be done as an anthology by Wesleyan University Press. In 2013 or 2014, it'll be a 700-page book, and uh, it's a big book, and and it's very generous of them to be willing to do it. Um, but I, I'm I'm having to edit 11,000 pages down into 700 pages. So uh, I realize that several other anthologies of the same length could be created out of sulfur that would be from you know from many viewpoints just as valuable as what I've edited. So.
1: Well, anyway. except that you're the, you're the captain of, I'm of the sulfur, I'm the captain, so. yeah. Um, could we hear, could we hear uh, an, another poem, Clayton?
0: Yeah, let me read this um, Lynch 1. This is the poem that I read in translation by Emile Snyder, an early—he was a French transplant, a man who lived in America during most of his adult life, and who was one of the first people to translate Césaire. Um, and this is the piece that I found in Jack Hirschman's magazine in 1960, which made me feel that I had to study Césaire. I didn't know why, and I really didn't understand the piece. And I'm not sure that I understand it now, but here it is. Lynch 1. Why does spring grab me by the throat? What does it want of me? So what if it does not have enough spears and banners? I jeer at you, spring, for flaunting your blind eye and your bad breath, your debauchery, your corrupt kisses. Your peacock's tail makes spirit tables turn with patches of jungle, fanfares of marching sap. But my liver is more acidic, and my venifice stronger than your malefice. Lynch, it's 6 p.m. in the mud of the bayou. It's a black handkerchief fluttering atop a pirate ship mast. It's the strangulation point of a fingernail in the carmine of an interjection. It's the pompa, it's the Queen's Ballet, it's the sagacity of science, it's the unforgettable coitus. Oh lynch, salt, mercury, and antimony. Lynch is the blue smile of a dragon, enemy of angels. Lynch is an orchid too lovely to bear fruit. Lynch is an entry into matter. Lynch is the hand of the wind, bloodying a forest whose trees are galls, brandishing in their hands the living flame of their castrated phalli. Lynch is a hand sprinkled with the dust of precious stones. Lynch is a release of hummingbirds. Lynch is a lapse. Lynch is a trumpet blast, a broken gramophone record, a cyclone's tail dragged by the pink beaks of raptors. Lynch is a gorgeous chevalure that dread flings into my face. Lynch is a temple destroyed by roots and gripped by a virgin forest. Oh, Lynch, lovable companion, beautiful squirted eye, huge mouth, mute, unless a jerking there spills the delirium of mucus. Weave well, lightning bolt, on your loom a continent exploding into islands, an oracle contortedly slithering like a scolopendra, a moon settling in the breach, the sulfur peacock ascending in the succinct murderous hole of my assassinated hearing.
1: What what power. Yeah. Even, even in this moment, Clayton, how you read that, it's like it's. Um, it feels like it's 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 issue. It's coming out of you. Doesn't it?
0: No, 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 It's. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the says the the early Césaire is is something unique in surrealism. I mean, he, if you read this next to Breton and and the French surrealists, why, he often seems to be a much more potent and uh, abrasive, uh, writer. Yeah. So this is one of the poems that he cut out of this book when he revised it, after he had become fully involved with politics,
1: because it was too surreal,
0: too, too well, or, too or blasphemous, too too crazy. I mean, to talk about lynching in the way that he talked about lynching was, you know, shocking.
1: Solar throat slashed. That's from this book.
0: Uh, yes, the the title is based on a line from a that ends his famous poem called Zone, Sole coupe. Sun, throat or neck, Coupe cut or slashed. Yep.
1: And so it's it, at any one moment it feels like there's all these intersection of, of voices from around the world and different times in how you tick.
0: Well, you've only heard translations. Next time you'll. I, I have to read some of my own poetry.
1: Well, let's hear it. Can we... Can I
0: don't we? have any with me today. Not today? No.
1: Oh, no. Oh, no. No, no, no. no. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, How c- did this happen, today, Clean Today Didn't is, uh, you know you were coming to the radio?
0: <laughs> today is Cesar and Vallejo. No, uh, it's, it's perfectly fine. I'm, I'm happy with our program.
1: I'm not used to such modesty, though, from a poet. <laughs> as, as poets, we're usually, aren't we, trumpeting often but yet it's like you 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 feel such a kinship
0: i feel very much my own kind of weight as a writer in translating and reading a piece like i just read i i realize it's not my work but the lang the language the english is mine and so to some extent you know that's it's one of the mysteries of translation who does it belong, who does the translation belong to does the translation still belong to cesaire or does it belong to right. Eshelman? Or does it belong to no one?
1: And to the world, because now it's in whatever. the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever or to Lady Gaga? You know?
1: <laughs> when it's sampled, yeah, that's what's gonna happen. <laughs> we'll, use, we'll use that in the next show then, when she samples it. <laughs> well,
0: when you have her, ask her to read Césaire. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Do our best. Is this how Sulfur became the title of of the the magazine in the eighties because of the Sulfur Peacock? Is that
0: no Sulfur is also a, a moth. It's a bright yellow moth. And so it was an evolution of Caterpillar, my first magazine. Of course, yes. And it's spelled, in my context, S-U-L-F-U-R. Sulfur. And that's the moth. Of course, it evokes sulfur, the chemical agent. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. which is well, something that's associated, you know, with burning and, and, and aggression and, you know. And
1: transformative And, and, and
0: transformation, <laughs> yes, of course. And in alchemy, why sulfur is where you, right after you get through the burned out black stuff and you begin to move towards, you know, incandescence and transformation, why sulfur is the thing that m- gets you going. So I had that in mind with the name of the magazine too. Plus, there'd never been a literary magazine called Sulfur. I think it's important to call a magazine by something that, you know, hasn't been used before, rather than, you know, the such and such review or something like that.
1: <laughs> Take the fight to them, Clayton. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's true. I um, I it also this, it reminds me um, also about how, you I feel like um. Not to take us into the darkness, but just well for a moment, how I feel like when you were underneath in these caves, and you describe so clearly the experience of of kind of sometimes having to 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 crawl or pull yourself along, mm-hmm. and that that you you realize that these weren't daily records, but some sort of um, re- reaching upward of the imagination for companionship or so, like like these early drawings it wasn't some sort of well
0: we we could do a program on the caves if you wanted to but it would have to be a whole program because the caves is really like a different world and it's the first world of imagination i spent 25 years uh, on my research on upper paleolithic art and if you get my book Juniper fuse. Why you will you will see what's at stake. No, there's a tremendous amount at stake in this material, and it's not something that I would want to talk about for ten or fifteen minutes. It's it we would, we would, you and know, s- need to dedicate at least an hour to it.
1: It's certainly uh, not thirty seconds.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Clayton
1: National it, Minute. It's been a real pleasure.
0: Thank you for inviting me. Thank, I was, thank you. For, I was pleased to be here.
1: Thank you for talking with me today. Um, you've been listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Clayton Eshelman, Um, keep an eye out for January 2013. Clayton Eshelman will be speaking at Nicola's Bookshop. Thanks for listening. Until next time.
0: Still here. Happy birthday, W. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, October 24th, 2012. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, third-party presidential candidates debate student debt, civil rights, the war on drugs, and the influence of outside money in politics. In Colorado, voting rights advocates question the Republican Secretary of State's efforts to find illegally registered voters. And we'll go to the West Bank, where Palestinian farmers face challenges and attacks during their annual olive harvest.
1: Those stories and more, but first, this news.
0: I'm Jess Burns with headlines for FSRN. Florida death row inmate John Ferguson has been granted another stay of execution. This came after an appeals panel ruled earlier this week his sentence could be carried out. FSRN's Janelle Irwin reports.
1: Ferguson was diagnosed as paranoid schizophrenic before being convicted of killing eight people during a home invasion in 1977. He was deinstitutionalized in the early 1970s against the advice of psychiatric doctors. Attorneys for Ferguson say he believes he is the Prince of God. State rulings have held that Ferguson's beliefs are rational because they're consistent with Christian views. A federal appeals court in Georgia yesterday granted an emergency stay that was then upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. According to Ferguson's attorney, Christopher Hanman, the stay could still be overturned before more arguments are made, but that isn't likely. He says briefs from both sides will be filed over the next two weeks.